Now this morning, uh, as I mentioned, we're going to be looking to, uh, to Genesis uh, chapters 10 and 11. Genesis 10 is uh, sometimes referred to as a, uh, the table of nations. And uh, what it does then is to give us a thumbnail sketch of the descendants of the three sons of Noah. It makes some, nation, um, some mention of the nations which were descended from these men. The three sons of Noah, as we've seen in the text of Genesis up until now, are Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And the table of nations then is arranged in such a way that it begins with Japheth, proceeds to Ham, and then uh, in the lineage of Ham places a special emphasis on a man named Nimrod and a special emphasis on the descendants of Canaan. And then at the end it works through uh, some of the descendants of Shem. Now, Overall, as we consider Genesis 10 and 11, we'll be having three points for this morning. First will be the table of nations from Genesis 10, the table of nations. Secondly, uh, looking at chapter 11, verses 1 through 9, the Tower of Babel, that'll be the problem of pride. Problem of pride. And then for the latter portion of chapter 11, uh, verses 10 through 32 will be God's faithfulness in an evil world. So we have the table of nations, the problem of pride, and God's faithfulness in an evil world. So first, let's look to the text then of Genesis chapter 10. Moses writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says, Now these are the records of the generations of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, sons of Noah, and sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth were Gomer, and Magog, and Madai, and Javan, and Tubal, and Meshach, and Tirez. The sons of Gomer were Ashkenaz, Riphath, and Togarma. The sons of Javan were Elisha, and Tarshish, Kittim, and Dodanim. From these, the coastlands of the nations were separated into their lands, every one according to his language, according to their families, into their nations. From the sons of Ham were Cush and Mizraim and Put and Canaan. The sons of Cush were Siva and Havilah, Sabta, Raama, Sabteca. The sons of Raama were Sheba and Dedan. Now Cush became the father of Nimrod, he became a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel and Erech and Akkad and Kalna in the land of Shinar. From that land, he went forth into Assyria and built Nineveh and rehoboth Ir and Kala and Rezin between Nineveh and Kala, that is, the great city. Mizraim became the father of Ludim and Ananim and Lahabim, and Naphtuhim, and Pathrasim, and Kazluhim, from which came the Philistines, and Kaphtorim. Canaan became the father of Sidon, his firstborn, and Heath, and the Jebusite, and the Amorite, and the Girgashite, and the Hivite, and the Archite, and the Sinite, and the Arvadite, and the Zemurite, and the Hamathite, and afterward, the families of the Canaanite were spread abroad. The territory of the Canaanite extended from Sidon. As you go toward Gerar, as far as Gaza, as you go toward Sodom and Gomorrah and Adma and Zeboim, 
as far as Lasha. These are the sons of Ham according to their families, according to their languages, by their lands, by their nations. Also Shem, the father of all the children of Eber and the older brother of Japheth, children were born. The sons of Shem were Elam and Asher and Arphaxad and Lud and Aram. The sons of Aram were Uz and Hul and Gether and Mash. Arphaxad became the father of Shelah and Shelah became the father of Eber. Two sons were born to Eber. The name of the one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided and his brother's name was Joktan. Joktan became the father of Almodad and Shelef and Hazarmaveth and Jerah and Hadoram and Uzal and Dikla and Obal and Abimel and Sheba and Ophir and Havilah and Jobab. All these were the sons of Joktan. Now their settlement extended from Misha as you go towards Sephar, the hill country of the east. These are the sons of Shem according to their families, according to their languages, by their lands, according to their nations. These are the families of the sons of Noah according to their genealogies, by their nations. And out of these, the nations were separated on the earth after the flood. Now one could certainly go into uh, more detail than I will this morning in regard to chapter 10, but let me just uh, make a few remarks of some of what we see on the, the table of nations here. Verses 2 through 5, we have the early descendants of Japheth. It's generally understood that the descendants of Japheth are the, the European peoples or the Indo-European peoples. Uh, Japheth's son Javan, in particular, is regarded as the, the ancestor of the Greeks. And while it may or may not actually be the case, some have thought uh, that Meshach, who is mentioned here, is an ancestor of the, the Russian people. And if you trace the names back, that the name of the city Moscow or the uh, Moskva River on which Moscow sent, uh, ma- on which the city of Moscow is situated, eventually traces its name back to uh, this fellow Meshach. Madai seems to be the father of the ancient Medes, that is the Medes in the sense of the, the Medes and the Persians. Javan's son Tarshish has the same name that is eventually given to the city of Tarshish, the city uh, to which Jonah desired to flee later on, and possibly what we know as Spain. As for the sons of, of Ham, the name Cush is the name that is eventually given to the, the region in Africa south of Egypt, corresponding uh, roughly to what we know today as some of the area of Sudan. Uh, Sudan. The, uh, the name Mizraim uh, that is there as one of the descendants of Ham is the same word uh, in Hebrew that is used for the land of Egypt. And thus, uh, in Psalm 105, verse 27, as it describes the miraculous acts of the Lord leading up to the exodus of the people from Egypt, the land of Egypt is described as the land of Ham, that is, the land of the descendants of Ham. And uh, we also find that verse 13 identifies Mizraim as, the, as an ancestor of the Philistines as well. Now we also find here this brief and fascinating account of one single individual, a man named Nimrod. And what is fascinating here is that Nimrod gets more press in chapter 10 than any other individual gets. He gets a full five verses from verse 8 down to verse 12. 
And in order to understand this man, I think we need to read those five verses very thoughtfully, because I think just a quick and cursory glance at those verses might give us the wrong impression. When we read that he was a mighty one upon the earth and a mighty hunter before the Lord, so much so that his name and his exploits became a proverbial saying, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord, we might initially think, wow, that's, that's pretty cool. This guy's, this guy's a great hunter. He's, he's the, the Daniel Boone, the David Crockett, the Buffalo Bill of his day. Nothing wrong with that. And if that's what we come away with, I think, I think we're actually getting the wrong impression of what the text is saying. Because just look at, uh, at what follows in verse 10. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel and Erech and Akkad and Kalna in the land of Shinar. In other words, this man is not just a big game hunter. This man is a king. And it may be that he got his start hunting animals, but it's generally understood that him receiving this designation as a mighty hunter is not limited to animals, but is actually extended to his tyranny over mankind. Indeed, this imagery of hunting is later applied to human tyranny in the Old Testament. A place like Lamentations 3.52, where Jeremiah says, My enemies without cause hunted me down like a bird. Or likewise, the imagery is applied to military conquest. Lamentations 4.18, They hunted our steps so that we could not walk in our streets. So this imagery of him being a hunter is not just restricted to animals. This is extended also to his kingdom. This is a king with a kingdom. And his kingdom is not simply in Babel. It goes further. Verses 11 and 12 gives us that information. From that land he went forth into Assyria, built Nineveh, and Rehoboth Ear, and Kala, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kala. And so this man, Nimrod, is not merely a big game hunter, not merely a king. This man is it's a bit of an empire builder, you might say. For whatever it's worth, the Jewish historian Josephus viewed Nimrod as being the instigator of the building of the Tower of Babel. And essentially, uh, Nimrod saying that he would be revenged on God if he should have a mind to drown the world again. And that he would build a tower too high for the waters to be able to reach. And that he would avenge himself on God for destroying his forefathers. Now, that may or may not be the case. That was Josephus' take, certainly not the Bible. But nevertheless, this man seems to show, at the very least, that the violent and rebellious fallen nature of man is alive and well here after the flood. There was violence before the flood. Nimrod seems to uh, indicate that there is, is violence and rebellion after the flood as well. And indeed, his name seems to be coming from the word which means to rebel. In verses 15 through 19, we find the descendants of Canaan, infamously the Canaanites, who would proceed to great wickedness and would be judged by God in the conquest of the promised land. Verses 21 through 29, we see the descendants of Shem, some of whom we'll see again here at the, uh, the close of chapter 11, as Moses there traces for us the genealogy from Shem down to, to Abram. Verse 25, we're given a, a bit of a window into uh, the reason behind the naming of this man Peleg, 
who's the fourth generation down from Shem. He's Shem's great-great-grandson. He's named Peleg, or division, because in his days the earth was divided. And this seems to be in reference to the division of the peoples that occurred with the confusion of the language at the Tower of Babel that we'll see here in a few moments from chapter 11. Now, Peleg's brother, Joktan, is mentioned along with him. Following Joktan are mentioned the names of 13 sons of Joktan in verses 26 through 29. And the geography inhabited by them, as described in verse 30, is generally uh, seems to be in reference to what we would refer to as Arabia or the Arabian Peninsula. And so Moses gives us this thumbnail sketch of the descendants of Noah's three sons, and he gives us some pointers as to where they settled. And as we'll see in the latter part of, verse, or of chapter 11, later on in the sermon, this general genealogy of all of these nations becomes much more specific and focused as the line is traced from Shem down to Abram. But before we get there, we need to consider the history of the Tower of Babel in verses 1 through 9 of chapter 11, which brings us to our second point for this morning, which is the problem of pride. And so if you would, let's look back to the text in chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. Now the whole earth used the same language and the same words. It came about as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. They said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone, and they used tar for mortar. They said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven, and let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. The Lord said, Behold, they are one people. And they all have the same language. And this is what they began to do. And now, nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language, so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there, over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth. And from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. And so, as mankind was journeying eastward from the Ararat mountain range upon which Noah's Ark had come to rest, they eventually come to this plain, Shinar, and they settled there. And contrary to the command which was given by the Lord to Noah and his sons, In Genesis 9-1, the command to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, these people now want to remain all together. They have a plan, a plan to make building materials. They have a plan to build a tower. They give their purpose there in verse 4. Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven. And let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the earth. And so on the one hand, there's this rebellious impulse in the desire to refrain from filling the earth. And there's also this pride and ambition and arrogance of these people. They want the top of this tower to reach into heaven, they say. Who do these people think they are? Evidently, they think they're pretty special. They want to make 
a name for themselves. They want to be known. They want to be remembered. They want what they want, and they're going to try to get what they want by using what technology they had and working hard in a rebellious kind of way. As to technology, we should note they're building materials. These men are not simply using sun-dried mud for bricks. They were evidently using some kind of oven-baked bricks because they said, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. They're, they've, they've got some technology going. They, they know how to fire a kiln or something and bake these bricks, make them hard, and they have uh, tar or bitumen for, for mortar. And so these, these people are serious about what they're doing. They have this rebellious plan, and they're bringing their technology, their ingenuity, and their hard work to the table to accomplish their design. One writer, I think, rightly captured the spirit here that was going on by calling it arrogant humanism. Arrogant humanism. And indeed it was. It was an arrogant rebellion against the Lord. And this only becomes clearer in what follows when the Lord comes down to look at the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. You see that in verses 5 and following. The Lord sees the unity of these people. He sees their their unity in rebellion against him. Unity can be a great thing when it's channeled toward the right ends and goals. Unity can also be a very wicked thing if everybody's united in doing the wrong thing. And so the Lord sees their unity in rebellion, and he says, behold, they are one people. They all have the same language. And this is what they began to do, and now nothing which they purpose will be impossible for them. So the Lord sees the unity of the human race and their commitment uh, to purposes of wickedness. And the Lord sees the danger of this. Now, what's the danger? Well, the danger of this is not, I repeat, is not that the Lord himself feels any danger from their proud designs. On the contrary, the Lord's perspective is laid out in Psalm 2. Why are the nations in an uproar and the people devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters and cast away their cords from us. And this is essentially the spirit of the builders of the Tower of Babel, isn't it? Let's cast away the Lord's cord from us. And, but what does the Lord say in Psalm 2? says that he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. And so obviously the Lord himself is not threatened by their rebellion, not in the least. But he does recognize the danger that it poses toward mankind, the danger that it poses toward us. He certainly knows that this kind of activity runs contrary to his purposes, and so he thwarts their plans and their intentions by confusing their language so that they can no longer understand one another and since they can't understand one another, they can no longer work together in unity in their rebellion against the Lord. And this is a wonderful and oft-repeated phenomenon that we find in Scripture that the Lord so often hinders and prevents human ambition, human rebellion, and human pride. Now, it's certainly true that God doesn't always thwart wickedness. He doesn't thwart every wickedness. But the Lord in his goodness restrains an awful lot of evil, more than you or I know. And for that, we should be thankful. Now, as horrible as the 
late phenomenon of mass shootings has become in recent years, how often is it that we learn after the fact that the evil that was planned and the evil that was prepared for on the part of the perpetrator was actually greater, perhaps much greater, than that which they actually accomplished? It's horrible enough what they did, but if they did everything they were planning to do, that would be even more horrendous, even more terrible. The fact that they were not able to do everything that they planned is the hand of God restraining evil and limiting evil. And I think this is one of the great lessons that we learned from, from Daniel chapter 11. Daniel chapter 11 is the, the prophetic word which came to Daniel concerning the, the future kingdoms which would follow Persia and Greece. And at length gets to the, uh, the dynasties of the Ptolemies in Egypt and the, the Seleucid dynasty in Syria. And one of the noteworthy things that you, that you find in Daniel 11 again and again is the divine hand of God restraining evil and thwarting the purposes of the wicked. I would encourage you sometime to sit down and read through the first 20 verses, first 20 verses of Daniel chapter 11, and see how often you see someone's power being thwarted or someone's plans being thrown off. You'll find things like this. But she will not remain in her position of power, nor will he remain with his power. But he will return to his own land. Yet he will not prevail. The violent ones among your people will also lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but will fall down. You see that kind of thing again and again in Daniel chapter 11. And the hand behind all of those thwartings is the same hand that is behind the confusion of the languages here at the Tower of Babel. It is the Lord restraining evil. It is the Lord sovereignly working his purposes to bring about his plans and his promised salvation to the world. And also, for our benefit, to keep things from getting too out of control and too chaotic here in the meantime. Truly, the prophet Habakkuk says in Habakkuk 2.13, is it not indeed from the Lord of hosts that people toil for fire and nations grow weary for nothing? There's sometimes all of this activity, all of this planning and purpose, but the goal is not reached because God in his wisdom and in his grace will not allow that goal to be reached. In the words of Psalm 33, verses 10 and 11, the Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the people. The counsel of the Lord stands forever and the plans of his heart from generation to generation. And that should be a comfort to us. Who are these men that make such great plans and such great boasts, after all? Who are they? Well, they're but a breath. They appear for a little while and then vanish. Only the purposes of God will stand. And that should encourage us to trust God and stay the course, even in the darkest and bleakest of times, even in times when it seems that all of mankind is united in their revolt against God, and when it seems for a time that they're actually making headway in that revolt. We do well to remember in those moments that the Lord scoffs at their pride. Here they were, these men who were going to build a tower such that, that the top reached into heaven. But when the Lord came to see it, we're told, as a manner of speaking, that he came down. They thought they were so high and mighty, but as a matter of speaking, the Lord comes down to see it. Or as we find in verse 7, the Lord says, come, let us go down. Obviously, God doesn't have to change his location to, to see things. He fills 
heaven and earth with his infinite being. But nevertheless, uh, the Lord condescends to our mode of speaking and our mode of understanding by speaking in this way that he comes down to take a look. And so the Tower of Babel is the product of this proud and rebellious unity of hearts. God humbled them by confounding them and bringing their efforts to nothing. But we would do well to do a little introspection and think about ourselves for a moment. What about you and me? Where's your heart? Proud and rebellious. What about my heart? Where is it? Proud and rebellious. Our pride and rebellion can take a lot of different forms, can't it? There is, of course, the, the pride and rebellion of the sort in the text, the pride that simply wants to exalt humanity, make much of mankind. Certainly, as the book of Genesis makes clear, mankind is fearfully and wonderfully made. Men and women are the crown of God's creation. We're created in the image of God. But we must remember that we are not God, that we are his creatures, and that we must submit to him in reverence and awe. The problem is that fallen mankind wants to exalt itself, wants to, as these men did, make a name for itself, and as it were, shakes its fist in the face of God. It is almost as if they were trying to bring God down and exalt themselves in one fell swoop. Now, a variant on this kind of pride and rebellion that wants to exalt mankind is the kind of pride and rebellion that not so much wants to exalt mankind in general, but rather a particular man, a particular woman. Namely, you yourself, or me, myself. Think of Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel chapter 4. He was out walking on the roof of his royal palace, and he said, Is this not Babylon the Great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? Sometimes pride is personal. The exaltation of the self, glorying in one's own accomplishments, one's abilities, one's achievements, and so on. Sometimes the pride is such that it openly exalts its sinfulness. The glorying in sin. Paul speaks of those in Philippians 3.19 whose God is their appetites, whose glory is in their shame. They sin, and they're not remorseful about it. They're proud about it. This happens a lot. It happens a lot. And these are some blatant non-Christian forms of pride, if you will. But... Pride also comes to those of us who profess faith in Christ. And pride comes to not only those who profess faith in Christ, but those who actually truly know Christ, to those who are truly born again. How so? Well, some of us have been blessed to attain to some measure of knowledge of the truth. Some of us know the scriptures quite well. Some of us know church history, theology. Knowledge is good. Ignorance is no virtue. Let's be clear about that. Ignorance is not a virtue. But the sad thing is, is that which Paul points out in 1 Corinthians 8, 1 and 2. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he has not yet known as he ought to know. Now, isn't that the sad thing? Even knowledge of the truth can lead us to arrogance. Sometimes we can be arrogant about things that we actually know, 
Sometimes we think we know more than we do and we become conceited and puffed up about ourselves, about what we think we know or about what we intend to share with others. And sometimes even when we do know the truth, we can use the knowledge of the truth as a club with which to beat others instead of truly speaking the truth in love for the purpose of building others up. And the same could be said in regard to to godliness and holiness. We sometimes may tend to think that we have attained a, a great measure of godliness and holiness and feel that no one else is there with us, that we have surpassed everyone else, or at least, at least most everyone else. Now, obviously we know, we know, that Jesus once spoke a parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Luke 18, verse 9. And all of us, I imagine, would want to distance ourselves from that blatant and outright pharisaical pride in the sense of trusting in ourselves that we are righteous. We know, yes, we know we're, we're sinners, that we're only righteous through faith in Christ. And so while we might not trust in ourselves that we can gain righteousness for ourselves, we might still have trouble viewing others with contempt. We might not have gotten beyond that part as if they've not attained to the same spiritual level that I have, and they're not as outwardly passionate, not as pious, not as holy as I am. Now, what can we say to such pride as this? In some cases, you might be just plain wrong in your estimation. You may be completely incorrect. You may be forming your judgments based on incorrect information, incorrect criteria, etc. In such case, obviously, there's no room for pride. But let's just suppose for a moment that you're actually right. Maybe you know more. Maybe you are more passionate. Maybe you are more godly, more holy, or whatever. Maybe you are moving far beyond your contemporaries in Christian growth and sanctification. But even if such is the case with you, the words of 1 Corinthians 4-7 are applicable. What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? My friends, I would guess that All of us, at least many of us, are at least tempted in regard to pride. And I would venture to say that many of us yield to the temptation. I know I certainly do. Sometimes our pride comes through in haughty looks or in arrogant words or actions or even simply a prideful demeanor. Something about the way we carry ourselves as we interact with life. But sometimes we can keep the pride pretty well hidden. Maybe we're not building a monument to make a name for ourselves. Maybe we're not outwardly flaunting wickedness or shaking our heads at those who don't measure up as we walk by. But if the inside of our hearts were known, it might reveal a whole lot of pride. It might reveal a whole lot of arrogance if only our thoughts were made known to the watching world. And pride is despicable to God. God is opposed to the proud, as we find in James 4, 6. Man in his pomp will not endure. He is like the beasts that perish, Psalm 49, 12. The proud will be judged by God. And what this means, then, is that for all of us, we have to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may lift us up in due time. Whether you are a prideful Christian or a prideful non-Christian, in some sense the remedy is one and the same for both. And that is, you need to repent and believe the gospel. Obviously, if you're a Christian, you have already done this. But you need to keep 
doing it. You need to keep repenting of sin as you become aware of it in your life. You need to keep believing the gospel. And if you are not a Christian, again, the remedy is the same. You must turn from your pride and from all of your sins and look with faith to the mercy of God that is extended unto us in Jesus Christ. Rightly understood, the gospel of Jesus takes away all of our pride. The law of God convicts us of our sin and our rebellion, our disobedience to God, convicts us of our failure to reverence God as God, and in so doing, the law informs us that we deserve to be judged by God on account of our sins, that we deserve to die and to perish eternally. But yet, in the gospel, we learn that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came into the world to save sinners. We learn that he did this by living a sinless life on earth and by willingly going to the cross to save sinners. That he endured the punishment that we deserved for our sins, that he died and was raised on the third day so that we might be given the gift of righteousness. Our salvation is all of grace, and that means that if there's anything good in us, it is the gift of God. James reminds us, James 1, 17 and 18, that every good gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of firstfruits among his creatures. Every good gift, salvation and everything else, comes from God. There's no room for boasting. The gospel humbles us by reminding us, as Paul does in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 27 and following, that God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world and the despised. God has chosen the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are. Here's the purpose. So that no man may boast before God. By his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. Again, it's by grace you've been saved through faith and this not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. This is the only true remedy for our pride. The blood of Christ is the way by which this rebellion of ours can be forgiven. The law of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only message which rightly puts us in our place and makes us truly what we were made to be, namely humble servants of Almighty God. And so... Whoever you are today, allow the pride of man that we see here at the Tower of Babel to show you your own sin, your own pride, your own rebellion, or any other sin, and to show you your need for the grace of God. And look to Jesus today. Trust Jesus today. And if you have more questions about what it means to trust in Jesus, you can talk to me or to another Christian here. We would love to tell you more about what it means to trust in Jesus because we want you to know that there is forgiveness of sins and new life to be found in Jesus Christ. Now, let's, let's look back to the text. Genesis 11, we'll read down uh, from verse 10 down through the end of the chapter. These are the records of the generations of Shem. Shem was 100 years old and became the father of Arphaxad two years after the flood. And Shem lived 500 years after he became the father of Arphaxad and had other sons and daughters. Arphaxad lived 35 years and became the father of Shelah. And Arphaxad lived 403 years after he became the father of Shelah and he had other sons and daughters. Shelah 
lived 30 years and became the father of Eber. And Shelah lived 403 years after he became the father of Eber, and he had other sons and daughters. Eber lived 34 years and became the father of Peleg. And Eber lived 430 years after he became the father of Peleg and had other sons and daughters. Peleg lived 30 years and became the father of Ru. And Peleg lived 209 years after he became the father of Ru and had other sons and daughters. Ru lived 32 years and became the father of Sarag. And Ru lived 207 years after he became the father of Sarag and he had other sons and daughters. Sarag lived 30 years and became the father of Nahor. And Sarag lived 200 years after he became the father of Nahor and had other sons and daughters. Nahor lived 29 years and became the father of Terah. And Nahor lived 119 years after he became the father of Terah and he had other sons and daughters. Terah lived 70 years after he became, excuse me, 70 years and became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now, these are the records of the generations of Terah. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran became the father of Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his birth in Ur of the Chaldeans. Abram and Nahor took wives for themselves. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. The name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Ixa. Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went out together from Ur of the Chaldeans in order to enter the land of Canaan. And they went as far as Haran and settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now this brings us to our third point for this morning, which is God's faithfulness in an evil world. God's faithfulness in an evil world. These verses obviously show us the lineage from Shem, son of Noah, to Abram, father of the nation of Israel. Now, we don't know much about the individuals listed here beyond what we are explicitly told concerning these men, how old they were when they had their sons, and how old they were when, they're di- when they died. We do know, back from chapter 10, that Peleg was so named because in his day the earth was divided. Beyond that, we, we don't know much. One of the incidental things, though, that we can observe here that's worth mentioning in passing is the fact of the decreasing lifespans which we see here. Noah had lived to the age of 950. His son Shem makes it to 600. His, Noah's grandson, Arphaxad, makes it to 438. By the time you get to Nahor, who's the father of Abraham, we find that he lived 148 years. That's, that's pretty old by, by our standards. No one lives that old anymore. But compared to the immediate preceding generations, he died young. The lifespan of, of humanity is decreasing. But what we need to observe here for our edification and our instruction is that the period which this genealogy covers is the period between the flood and Abram. This is the period during which Nimrod is running wild and establishing his earthly kingdom in apparent tyranny. This is the period during which the Tower of Babel was attempted by proud and bold men, and the effort was brought to naught by the confusion which God had brought upon them. And yet, all the while, God is working out his plan in faithfulness to his promises. 
God had promised that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent and nothing, not the apparent violence and domination of Nimrod nor the impudence of the builders of Babel will do anything to hinder God's faithfulness to his promise. God's work was still going forward, even perhaps at a time when God's plan and promise was perhaps largely forgotten by men. And the going forward of his plan probably seemed fairly imperceptible. What matters in this regard is that God himself had not forgotten and that God himself remained faithful. As the book of Genesis goes on to make clear, God raised up Abram to be the father of a great nation and through him then all nations of the earth were to be blessed. Certainly we know the way in which that blessing comes. It comes through the coming of Jesus Christ. And so as a, as a takeaway from this, when you see wickedness abounding, and when you get concerned about how things are going to go down, it might actually be helpful to think back to the genealogy here of Genesis 11. Genesis 11 is probably not what would first come to mind when you're thinking in the recesses of your mind for a comforting passage of Scripture when the world appears to have gone off the rails and gone mad. But nevertheless, there is comfort to be found here in the second half of Genesis 11 in such moments when the world appears to have gone off the rails and gone completely mad. There is comfort here because the same dynamics that are in play in our time were dynamics that were in play during this period between Shem and Abram. Is there violence and tyranny in our world? Of course there is. Same was going on back then. Are people boldly rebelling against God and seeking to make themselves great? Of course they are. Same was happening back then as well. Does the number of those who follow the Lord seem to be small? Now, we don't have definitive statistics from these centuries, but it was probably a pretty slim number of those who were walking with the Lord during these years. But on the other hand, God was working out his purposes for the salvation of his people. And he's still doing the same today. And we should notice that the outworking of God's plan here in Genesis 11 was, was nothing really flashy, was it? God was working out his purposes through things like marriage and pregnancy and the birth of children and the raising of children and those kinds of things as he was bringing the promised seed of the woman into the world. And the corresponding reality today is that the Lord often works his purposes in small and sometimes seemingly mundane ways. Seems mundane. Men and women telling their friends and their family about Jesus. Parents having family worship and devotions with their children, raising them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. People setting aside a day of the week to gather together with other believers in worship and to hear the word of God. People being marked out and nourished as God's people through the use of such common things as water, bread, and the fruit of the vine. It's most often not very flashy. It doesn't, doesn't appear very stunning to the eyes of the world. It is often ordinary and may seem mundane, but it is through such means that God is bringing about his eternal purposes to save a people for himself. Some are planting, some are watering, some are harvesting, but all along, all through the process, God is giving the growth. God is giving the increase. And the end result will be eternal life and eternal joy for those who trust in Christ. And so friends, if you have concerns about the world you are living in, I want you to know I share those concerns. 
But I also want you to think back to Genesis 11. And remember that despite all of the wickedness and rebellion of men, God was bringing his purposes to pass. And he is still doing the same. He is still causing all things to work together for good, for those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose. And therefore, may God grant that we would all respond to this world in such a way that David counseled in Psalm 37. Do not fret because of evildoers. Be not envious toward wrongdoers, for they will wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Psalm 37, 1 through 4. In other words, don't, don't worry about the wicked. God will judge them. You worry about you. Trust in the Lord. You do good. You dwell in the land. You cultivate faithfulness. You walk with the Lord. You love other people. And you delight yourself in the Lord. And ultimately, he's going to bring about his purposes of salvation for his people. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your faithfulness. We know that the world is a wicked place because of the wicked people who dwell in it. And Lord, we pray that you would keep us from joining them in their rebellion against you, that you would keep us walking with you faithfully, that you would lift us up when we fall. We pray, Lord, that we would not grow disheartened but rather that we be strengthened, that we be blessed, that we be built up, that we be continually looking to Christ, continually trusting in him. We praise you that you are faithful. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.